Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Hey, would you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 7. Now, 2 Kings is in the Old Testament. It's going to be towards the front of your Bible. No shame in trying to find that. Just look in your index or if you're using a digital device, just find 2 Kings uh, and it's right before Chronicles, if that helps you any, there's a first Kings and a second Kings. Make sure you're at the one that has a probably a Roman numeral two or, or two in front of it. Hey, uh, second Kings seven. So I, I finished a series last week and I'm not preaching next Sunday. I'll be here again, but I'm not preaching next Sunday. Somebody else is. And so um, I, I'm kind of in one of those, uh, I like to take and focus on certain things around Easter time. And I want to do that today. Now, if you'll find your place and just look right here, here's, here's what I know. I know sometimes as your pastor, uh, sometimes you probably grow weary if you're here every Sunday of me telling you to invite people to church and every Sunday for about the past five weeks, we have given you a different tool to use to invite people to Easter service. And I, I know what happens. I've been where you are. That, that kind of begins to fall on deaf ears a, a little bit. But but let, let me explain to you how important Easter Sunday is, just the overall spectrum of church. Here's what we think we know. is uh, Researchers tell us, Pew Research tells us that about on any given Sunday, 20% of Americans are in some place of worship or some religious organization uh, on the weekends. And so Saturday or Sunday, primarily Sunday, that about 20% of Americans, when they track it, now if you ask Americans, uh, they give you a lot bigger number than that, but the, when they track it, about 20%. Now, when I say 20%, be careful, we don't mean 20% are in a Baptist church, we don't mean 20% are even in a Christian church. The 20% of Americans includes all faiths, all religions, land in a church on any given Sunday. So that counts those who are in a Buddhist temple this morning, that counts those who are in a Mormon tabernacle, that counts those who are... Uh, uh, in a, in a mosque this morning, uh, 20% of all Americans will be in church somewhere uh, this morning or in a place of religion somewhere this morning. Now, you compare that to Easter and get this. CNN tells us that when they did the research this Easter, they are expecting, based on past history, on Easter Sunday, 51% of Americans will be in a place of worship on Easter Sunday. Now, let that number sink in for a moment because we're going from the week before Easter is 20%. The, the Easter Sunday is 51%. That's a 31% jump. And listen carefully. That represents not hundreds, not thousands, not tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands. That is millions of people will hear the gospel on Easter Sunday that desperately need a relationship with Christ. So, so I, I'm not pumping up Easter. You hear me well as your pastor. We're not pumping up Easter for six weeks. We're not doing some crazy things, be here next Sunday, uh, to pump, pump up Easter because I, we're trying to get a big number on Easter. I don't care. We're trying to get a big number of people who are far from God to hear the gospel, some for the first time in their lives in two weeks. 
So that leads me to my sermon today. I want to preach on this subject, uh, this title, People Are Starving. And that will make sense a little bit later on. This week, uh, uh, really a person of note passed away, Stephen Hawking. Uh, you, you may uh, remember Stephen Hawking. He, he's been on a lot of interviews. He was the scientist who had Lou Gehrig's disease. And he's, he's famous for his book, A Brief History of Time. When he wrote A Brief, Brief History of Time, he went to, he, he's a professor at Cambridge, and he, he went and he said, here's a book I want to write, and I want to write a, a book on uh, astronomy and modern physics, and I want to put it in layman's terms, so it's a book that'll be sold at the airport. And uh, the publisher and his, his, the professor at the time said, his lead professor said, I just don't think that's going to work, but they let him write the book anyway, and it, it really set, decades ago, set his, set his uh, career on a different track. And so uh, people were confused about Stephen Hawking for a long time because in a brief history of time and in interviews he did around that time, he almost alluded to the fact that he believed in God. But as he got closer to the end of his life, he began to make definitive statements about his lack of belief in God. For example, if you, when asked if you believe in God, here's what he said, there is no God, I am an atheist. That's a direct quote. When he was asked about creation and God's involvement in creation, did God have any involvement in creation? Listen to what uh, Stephen Hawking said. He said, because there is a law such as gravity, I quote, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. Stephen Hawking said that uh, uh, you, the, because there is a law of gravity, creation could create itself, which for a scientist makes no sense whatsoever, sense whatsoever because he never answered the question, where did the law of gravity come from? When he said that the law of gravity could light the blue touch paper uh, on fire that created what he's referring to is the, the big bang, the spark that created creation. He doesn't answer the question of who gave the spark and where did the paper come from. When asked about life after death, Stephen Hawking made this statement, and I quote, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Stephen Hawking, who passed away this week, did not believe in an afterlife, and he believed that you're, you are nothing more than a brain that ceases to exist when it dies. Can I say to you, if Stephen Hawking were true, the fact is, if there is no God, all we are doing today in, 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 in our lives is beyond pointless. It is ridiculous and ludicrous. 
If there is no God, it is ridiculous that we would spend a Sunday morning in church. If there is no God, it is ridiculous that we would go out and try to tell the world and invite them to be part of what we had. If there is no God, listen, when the offering plate passes in a moment, save your money. If there is no God, it's ludicrous that you would give into that. But ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that the facts prove there is a God. Not only the facts prove there is a God, the facts prove that this thing called Christianity that we are in today does matter. The facts prove that there is a place to go. Your brain, you're not just a brain that's a broken down computer. You are a body, a soul, and a spirit. And get this, when you die, that soul and spirit go somewhere. And it's plain in the Bible that there's only two places for that to go. One is called heaven and one is called hell. There is no in-between for good old boys or good people or, 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 or a fine upstanding citizens. There is no place. Every single person who ever lives either will spend eternity in a place called heaven or eternity in a place called hell. There is no in-between. And because of that reality, listen carefully, because of that reality, us sharing our faith, telling people the gospel story, and inviting them to church is not a good idea. It's an absolute necessity. As long as heaven is real, and as long as hell is hot, we have an urgency to tell others the good news of the gospel story. We have an urgency with this good news. Just like two guys, four guys in our story I want us to read today. So would you stand with me as we honor God's word by reading it? 2 Kings chapter 7, look beginning in verse number 3. In just a minute, I'll catch you up to where we are, but read this part of the story. Just follow along with me. Now, if you don't have a Bible, you can just look on the screen. It's up there. Now, there were four lepers, leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall only die. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, and when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight, left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, verse 8, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent, carried some from there also and went and hid it. Verse number nine, then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them saying, we went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied, and the tents intact. 
And the keepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. Thank you. You may be seated. So let me tell you where we are in the story, and I'll make some observations at the end. We pick up the story in chapter 7 where the Arameans or Sumerians, uh, Syrians as they're called in the text, have laid siege against the Samaritans or a portion of Israel. Now I said in the early service, I don't want to assume you know what a siege is. A siege is where the invading army surrounds a city they built like we do today, mainly circular cities in the day. They'd have a wall around it and so they would, they would lay siege around that wall and they would cut off all the supplies into the wall and the city could last for a while but after a while, a city had to make a decision, are we going to attack and possibly die or are we going to sit here and starve and possibly die? And so the, the Israelites, the Samaritans, had decided to stay inside the city walls and the Syrians had laid their army around the city, a huge army, and they had all the surplus, they had all the supplies, they had all the food, they had all the uh, bounty, and inside they were beginning to starve. Here's how bad it was going inside. Now, I, don't, I don't mean to be crude, but here's where we are. The Bible tells us that uh, food was so scarce that a donkey's head sold for a large amount of money. People were eating the flesh off a donkey's head. Again, not mean, being crude, but dove, dung, was a high-priced item, and people were eating dove dung. They were scraping it off the walls and cooking it and trying to eat it. And the worst story we're told in the Bible right before this, people were starting to eat their children. There's a story right before this where, where somebody had boiled their baby alive and killed it, and, and they had ate the flesh of their child. That's how terrible the siege has been. That's how terrible the hunger has been. So all that's been going on as we get into chapter 7 and, and we get to about verse number 3. That's what's been happening. We pick up the story. At verse number three, at verse number three, there are four lepers who were sitting outside the gate of the city. Now, why were they outside? Because they had leprosy. They would not have been allowed inside. So they were not allowed to congregate with everybody else. They were told to stay inside the city and so uh, outside the city, and so that's where they were. The lepers would have been the last people on the food chain, meaning if there was a loaf of bread and they had enough to share with the lepers, the lepers would have got the last and the smallest piece available. So here are these four lepers outside the city. They're slowly dying of leprosy. Now they're slowly dying of starvation. And they begin to talk to themselves. And here's what they said. Now he said, hey boys, the way I surmise it, we've got three options. Option number one, we can go into the city and they will not feed us inside the city and we'll starve inside the city. Option number two is we can sit right here and starve right here. Option number three is we can walk down to the enemy and surrender ourselves. Now, here's the problem with that. They may not want lepers as prisoners, and they may kill us on sight. Good chance of that. Or they may. There is a chance, there is a hope that they will take us as prisoners, and then they'll feed their prisoners. We go into the city, we die. We stay right here, we die. We go surrender ourselves. We may die quickly, but they may feed us. So it's not a bad line of reasoning. And so at dusk, they decided that's what we're going to do. And they mustered all of their courage at twilight. And they got up, and the Bible says they walked into the enemy's camp. And when they got there, not a soul 
was around. Where'd everybody go? Well, the Bible tells us they never knew this, that the Lord had intervened. And the moment the lepers took a step, the enemy heard a great noise like a giant army coming. And so the enemy thought, well, the, uh, the Israelites, they've went out and they've hired the Egyptian army and they've hired the Hittite army and they're coming and they're going to destroy us. And so you're, you're a Syrian and you're sitting in the army and you're just eating away, having a good time. And all of a sudden you hear what's coming down the hillside like this enormous army and they hear horses and they hear chariots and they hear armor rattling, the Bible says. And all it was was four bags of bones walking down the hillside. But man, they got so scared because of what God caused them to hear that they got up and they fled with nothing but the clothes on their backs. They left everything. And so here you have these four bags of bones walk into the camp and everything's there. The fire's still cooked. The chicken's still on the fire. There's food everywhere, bread everywhere. There's gold. There's silver. There's horses. There's donkeys. There's everything you could ever want. And man, they threw a party when they got there. Anybody ever seen Guy's Grocery Games before? Anybody ever watch Guy's Grocery Games? Sherry makes me. And so uh, uh, it's like guys' grocery games. Man, they got, a, they got a grocery cart, and here they go from tent to tent, throwing chickens and hams and all that stuff in there. And they filled it up with gold and silver and all that stuff. And they get a grocery cart, and it gets full. So they said, well, <laughs> we're not giving it up. We're stopping here. And so the Bible says they carried it out, dug a hole, buried it, and here they go again. And they're getting groceries and food and silver and gold, and they go and dig another hole and bury a bunch more. Finally, they said, well, Let's just eat to our fill. And they sat down and they started eating. The fire was going. The food was there. And they ate their fill. Now this is a little Joelology here, but you can picture it, right? They're sitting around the campfire and shirts splitting open like mine does most Sunday mornings. And they're kind of, don't mean, they're, they're kind of, you know, burping a little bit. You can see one of them just roll one out. And he says, uh, hey, fellas, this is, this is not right. One of them's got a big turkey leg in his mouth, and he's saying, what do you mean it's not right? I love the words that's used in verse number nine. He says, this is a day of good news, and we're keeping all this to ourselves. He literally said, we are silent. See, because... Guys, back in the city, people are starving. And we're out here celebrating our victory, eating our field. Back in the city, who knows how many more will die or be killed by morning because they knew that, that babies had been killed. People were dying every day of starvation. They said it's not right for us to sit here with enough bounty to feed the city and then some. We can't keep all this to ourselves, so let's go tell someone so they went marching back to the city didn't even get inside the city and they told the gatekeepers what had happened and immediately the gatekeepers told the uh, the throne room and then the word spread throughout the whole city now I'll stop the story there look this way what an awesome story of how God used the most unlikely people to save, save the city you say preacher what does this have to do with Easter because you can't help but see the relationship to this story in our need to tell others the good news of the gospel. Because in the New Testament, just so you know, the word gospel means good news. 
And look back in your Bible at verse number nine. They said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news and we remain silent. This day is a gospel day. And we are not telling anyone. There is a direct old correlation between this Old Testament story that God buried in the book of 2 Kings that reminds us we have a responsibility with our good news as well. We call it the gospel. So I want to talk to you about our responsibility with the good news. Some points, uh, so when I preach a sermon, typically what happens is I, I leave some preach in the passage. And so I give you three points, but sometimes I see two, three, four, five sermons in a passage. Sometimes I see seven, eight, or nine points. And for the sake of time, I don't preach all those. But I want to give you the sermon before the sermon. All right, you're good with that. Okay, so here we go. Don't write these down. They're not even on the screen. Here are three things I didn't put in my sermon, but I guess I did because I'm going to tell them to you right now before I launch into it. Can I say this about being a gospel witness when it comes to inviting people to church and telling them about Jesus? Can I say this? You don't have to have all your stuff together to be a good witness. Do you know that? These were the most unlikely good news tellers in the land of Israel. And sometimes we get the idea that if we don't have all our stuff together, we'll, we, we can't tell anybody else about Jesus or we can't invite them to church. Can I say this? If you're waiting to have all your stuff together, you'll never tell anybody about Jesus. You know why? You, you, it's bad English. You ain't never going to get it all together. Can somebody say amen right there? Second thing I, I, I'm not going to preach today is there is an urgency to that need. See, they, they could not wait because uh, the, uh, uh, people were dying every day. And I want to say to you, we have an urgency with our good news because every day right here in Peavine City, people are dying and going to a devil's hell without Jesus. And number three, it's a sin to keep silent. They looked around and they said... It, Look, if we don't go tell somebody, something bad's going to happen to us. Can I say this? The truth of the matter is, uh, sharing your faith, inviting people to church, telling somebody about Jesus is not a good idea. It is an absolute necessity for us to do it. So that's the sermon before the sermon. So let me give you the sermon. Number one, here's what I want you to know. The risk is worth the reward. The risk is worth the reward. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Here's what I mean. Here are four lepers who were dying of leprosy. They were dying of starvation. They looked around and they thought, now what's our reason for not going to surrender to the people who have all the food? Now, we're going to starve right here. We're going to starve in the city, but there is some hope that if we go uh, into the surrender to the enemy that we may get fed. And so they sat around and did the math and they said the risk was worth the reward. We can sit here and die slowly, no hope of life. Or we can go there and die quickly and have some hope of life. It was fairly sound logic. If there is some hope, let's take the risk. And I want to say to you today, I want to put the same question to you today. What do you have to lose by inviting somebody to church to hear the gospel? What do you have to lose by telling somebody what Jesus has done for you? See, I think if you sit down and think about it, the risk is worth the reward. And when the risk is worth the reward, you're compelled to act on it. I read a story. I sent this to Daniel, uh, who you saw a minute ago uh, the other day. I got a picture of, of a guy I want to introduce you to. His name is Jerry uh, Selby. 
Now, I, there was an article, it was a long expose article, Jerry's the one in the blue jacket, that was written about Jerry. Jerry lives in Michigan, and uh, uh, he, he was known as kind of a math genius. He's not a professor of anything. He worked in a mill most of his life, but he did go to school at night a lot, and finally got a master's degree, and he was just good with numbers. And uh, when he retired in 2000, he'd already developed a reputation of being a puzzle solver. They did his long expose on him. Uh, I read it this week. In 2003, he noticed a new lottery game in Michigan and started doing the math. Now, look this way. Everybody look this way. Nobody look down. Look at me. I'm not suggesting you go play the lottery. Everybody clear? Should we play the lottery? Say no. Just don't let me see you do it, all right? One way or the other. So, and if you do win, tithe off your winnings. That's all I'm saying, but... Now we've settled that. Hang with me. In 2003, he noticed a new lottery game. He started doing some math, and he decided that mathematically he could beat the system. So here's what he discovered. And they had a particular game in Michigan at the time that was like had a big old jackpot at the end of it. And if you get six numbers right, you won millions of dollars. But if you got five numbers right, you won thousands. And if you got four numbers right, you won thousands. And three, you got hundreds. And two, you got $10 and one, you got a five. It was some kind of weird game. But what happened was that if every time nobody won the jackpot, they rolled it over. And when it got to a certain amount of money, they doubled or either quadrupled all the wins. And so Jerry said, if I do the math correctly, if I buy enough lottery tickets, when it has doubled or quadrupled, there's no way I can't win money to cover my Expenses. So he didn't tell his wife what he was going to do, but he sat down and did the math. And he went out and he bought $2,000 worth of $1 lottery tickets. Stood at the machine for hours. He came back, and it takes hours to check winning numbers. When he checked his winning numbers, he had spent $2,000, and he had won $1,950. So he was $50 short. So he's doing the math, and he said, I know what my problem is. I didn't buy enough lottery tickets. So without telling his wife, he went and bought eight. Next time it doubled and quadrupled, he bought $8,000 worth of $1 lottery tickets. Stood at the machine a whole lot longer that time, did the math a whole lot longer, and now he told his wife about it. Because he spent $8,000, but he won a grand total of $15,700. Which means in that time he played, he was $7,700 to the good. And for both times he played, he was $7,650 to the good. Go, Jerry. Don't you do it. And so for the next eight years, he formed a company called GS Investment Strategies, LLC. And over the next eight years, he played the Michigan lottery 12 times, and Massachusetts had a similar lottery, and he drove 12 hours to play the Massachusetts lottery 43 times. Between the two lotteries, he played 55 times. Of those 55 times, he only lost money three and after eight years was over, by the way, about two years into it, a group of MIT students did the math themselves, and they were raking in tons of money as well. Jerry got his family involved. Some of them quit their jobs so they could count lottery tickets when he brought them back. He would stand in front of machines for days. 
And it was all said and done. In Michigan, Jerry had won $850,000. And in Massachusetts, he had bought $17.3 million worth of lottery tickets. And altogether, he won $7.75 million. I lost you somewhere along the way. I know I did. Because you're trying to get your birthday into the quick pick pick already. But Michigan and Massachusetts found the loophole, closed the game down right after this. You say, why do you tell us that lottery story? Because here's what I'm telling you. Jerry did the math and determined the risk was worth the reward. I'm saying to you, when it comes to inviting people to Christ, you need to do the spiritual math because you are risking some things. When you go and invite somebody to church, when you go and invite somebody and share Christ with them, listen, you are risking being embarrassed. You are risking being rejected. As a matter of fact, I want to promise you that you're going to have more no's than you're going to have yeses. You're risking some awkwardness among your coworkers or family. Listen, you may even be risking a friendship. And you say, preacher, what is worth that? I'll tell you what's worth that. Because the reward is heaven if they trust Jesus. The reward is eternal life. The reward is forgiveness. The reward is freedom. So no matter how you look at it, the risk is worth the reward. I don't want to go to heaven one day. And find out somebody's in hell because I was embarrassed to ask them to come to church with me. I want to ask you, what have you got to lose today? Go out and invite someone to church. Walk down the hall. Make the call. Send the text. Buy the Whatever it takes, the risk is worth the reward. Let me tell you the second thing, and that's this. God's working before you arrive. These lepers were not marching into the enemy's camp with swords drawn and puffed out chests, talking about how they were going to whip the enemy. They were tiptoeing, terrified. The chances were pretty good they were going to be killed, but here's what they didn't know. I love this. Here's what they didn't know, that them marching into the camp was all part of God's plan. God has been orchestrating this uh, in eternity past. They didn't know that a lot had been going on behind the scenes. God had been working and preparing. They didn't know that God was going to do a major work on their behalf. They didn't know that their leprosy was on purpose, that God had brought them to this world for such a time as this. And so before they arrived, God had the enemy hear a massive army coming, and they turned around and fled. And the four lepers, as far as we know, lived and died. And to this day, when they died, they didn't know what happened to the army. All they know that was that God was working before they arrived. And I want to tell you that you've got people in your life that you need to invite to church. You've got people in your life that you need to share Jesus with. Listen to me carefully. I want you to know that before you go, God is working before you arrive. How comforting is it to know that God is working in people's lives before you ask? It, it ought to give you courage. It ought to give you confidence knowing that God is paving the way for you. As a matter of fact, it ought to make the ask a little bit easier. I'm going to fly to Philadelphia this week. When I fly to Philadelphia, I don't land in my plane and go, and I wonder where I'm staying tonight. 
I wonder if I've got a rental car. I wonder what I'm supposed to do when I'm here. No, I have an assistant at the North American Mission Board. You know what she does? She schedules all my flights for me. She tells me where I'm sitting. She tells me what car uh, I'm going to go. She tells me that I've always got a car rented at Hertz. I like Hertz because they have my name on the board when I show up. And it just says go to that five-star area and pick out a car. And she has all that on there. She tells me what hotel I'm at. She tells me what my schedule is. She has on my calendar when I'm meeting with certain people throughout the day. I know exactly what I'm doing because here's what she has done. She has gone before me. So all I got to do is show up and do what I'm supposed to do. Can I tell you, God is working so much more than that. When you show up, you think that's the big deal. You don't even know. God's been doing so much more before you got there. He'll be working before you go. So here's what he'll be doing. He'll be sending the Spirit of God to convict people. He'll be orchestrating their life circumstances to make them pay attention. He'll be changing the desires of their heart. All of that's happening before you arrive. So here's what I want to say. Go in confidence. You're not going in alone. The details have been worked out by God long before you arrive. Let me tell you a third thing, and I'm finished. That is simply this. Jesus is too good to keep to yourself. Write that down and just close your Bibles and listen to me for the next couple minutes. Jesus is too good to keep to yourself. Can you see these guys sitting around the campfire rejoicing in their victory? Outcast no more. They may have leprosy, but they have more money and food than the king does at this very moment. Suddenly, in the middle of their rejoicing, a little guilt began to set in. A lot of guilt began to set in. They had all of this stuff while others were dying for lack of food. And here's what they finally decided. The victory was too good to keep to themselves. The news was too good to keep to themselves. Hey, look this way. Ladies and gentlemen, can I get an amen if it's great being a Christian? Can you say amen to that? How good is it to know your sins are forgiven, your past is wiped away? How good is it to know that, you know, before you became a Christian, you would have said, well, I'd like to become a Christian, but I can't live the Christian life. No, you cannot. But the Holy Spirit living through you does that. How great is it to have the promises of Scripture, the Word of God that I can claim in some of the most distressed times of my life? How great is it to lay my head on my pillow at night and know that if I die, I'll spend eternity in heaven with Christ? Listen, I want to say to you, I could go on and on and on, but if being a Christian is as good as we say it is, that news is too good to keep to yourself. With news that good, you have to share it. My wife, uh, uh, we, we moved here. It's true. We lived in the Atlanta area. My wife loves Costco. Her and Michaela went this week, and uh, Sherry calls me, and she's like, hey, what do we need at Costco? And I, I always say, I don't need anything in that quantity that you'll buy at Costco. I don't need a jar of peanut butter that big. I don't need four boxes of Raisin Bran. I don't need two cases of tissue paper that, co- that require a forklift to bring it into my house. She's always like, well, we'll use it eventually. Yeah, when I'm 82, I don't need that much of anything. My wife loves Costco. She, uh, matter of fact, uh, she, what, what she really likes about Costco is I buy that membership every year 
because she likes to sample all the little food they have around at the end of the aisle. I mean, we're just going to be honest. She, she has all this little food, and she'll, we'll go in there with the buggy, and I'm like, babe, what do we need? She said, oh, we need some crackers and cheese they got over here is what we need. And she'll walk around like, I'm surprised she doesn't have a bib tucked in her shirt. She's walking around just going from food to food to food to food. As a matter of fact, I, I came home this week. I came in the house, and uh, we had a... Uh, um, it was, a, it, was a, it was a case about this big. If you took my Bible and uh, you took my iPad and made a box about that size, a case of sardines. <laughs> Honey, why do I need 24 cans of sardines? Well, they had them on a cracker and some hot sauce over there in Costco, and it was the best thing ever. Do I really need that many sardines? I mean, could, could you just not held out till you got to Ingles and bought a can of sardines? I had to have a case of sardines. But you got to go with my wife through Costco. It's entertaining. My wife's walking around and she's got food everywhere and she's like, you want some? I'm like, no, babe, I, I don't want any. And so the other day, we were, the last time I was with her at Costco, we're walking down the aisle and I'm pushing. I got all that stuff in the car. And a lady comes by and she says, ooh, where'd you get that? And Mom's like, hey, come on, let me show you where I got this stuff. I'll carry you over here, and you can get some too. And she's like, well, have you tried this? And Sherry's like, no, tell me where that is. And here they go. I'm like, I'm, I'm over here. I'm over here. I'll just check out and back the Mack truck up to the door, and we'll load up and go home. And to add insult to injury, they don't box anything up for you while you're there either. And so um, she, she'll go through Costco. She'll, she'll have her some crackers in her hands. And, and she'll say, hey, have y'all tried those crackers? They're really good back there. I'm like, baby, you don't know who they are. No, but everybody wants some food. That's why they're here, right? No, they're here to buy cases of sardines, apparently. But she, she feels like that if, if that sardine cracker and hot sauce is so good, she just needs to help spread the news. And that's the way we are, right? We, we like telling people good news but can I say to you that there you have the best news there is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ that is the gospel and there are people all around you that need the forgiveness you have there are people all around you that need the freedom you have and there are people all around you that need the new birth and the eternal life and the peace of the Holy Spirit that you have. Jesus is too good to keep him to yourself. So what are you going to do? These next two weeks are two of the most important weeks in the whole year. People all around you will be deciding if and where to go to church. And I want to say to you, the risk is worth the reward. God is already working before you arrive and Jesus is far too good to keep to yourself. Josh, come on up and get us on together. Hey, can I ask you a question, church? Who have you been praying for that you need to invite? We give out those little white prayer cards, and I hope you have a name on those, but many of you have names on a prayer list. Who's God brought in your path recently that you need to invite to Christ? And, and listen, sometimes we don't because we're worried about being embarrassed. Sometimes we don't because we're worried about losing a friendship. Sometimes we don't because we're worried about awkwardness and we're trying to solve all of those for you. The Bible says everybody's a friend to him who gives gifts. Go buy a coffee mug filled with chocolate. And just give it to somebody that needs Jesus. You say, well, preacher, I don't know if that'll work. You don't know what God's already been doing in their lives. 
hand out an Easter invite card, make some phone calls, put up your yard sign, send a text. Listen, I'm not being overly dramatic when I say eternity depends on it. People are starving for the gospel. They need the answers, the peace, the forgiveness, the community, the church, the help, and the God you serve. And you have bled, bread of plenty. John 6.35, Jesus said this, one of my favorite verses of Scripture. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. There is no better news to this lost and crazy world we live in than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what are you doing with the gospel? People are starving for the bread of life, Jesus. And we have a holiday of all things. I didn't invent it. It's not mine. 30% of America will be in church maybe for the only time this year. Some for the only time in their life. Here's what I encourage you to do. Invite everyone you meet to church. Don't ask them if they go, just invite them. If they go to another church, they will not be offended. And if they tell you they go to church, just ask them who the preacher is. If they stutter, they don't go. Invite everybody you know to church. And when you see brokenness in people's life, share Christ. So I hope right now There's somebody on your heart. There are people on your heart. You say, preacher, it'd be a miracle if they came. Yeah. It'd be a miracle if four lepers won the battle and fed a whole city too, wouldn't it? But God did it. And he can do it in your life too. Would you stand with me? kind of what I want to do I I think Easter is too important I think the gospel is too important for us to uh, just to ignore the fact the importance it has so our heads are bowed our eyes are closed if you're in the overflow heads are bowed eyes are closed Can, can I ask you to do this here's what we know the risk is worth the reward we know that here's what you may not have known God's working out the details before you make the ask. So here's what I want to ask you to do. How many Christians would join me at the altar this morning? You've you've got a face in your mind. You've got somebody on your heart. You've got a family on your heart. And here's what your prayer is going to be this morning. God, go before me. Give me the courage to make the ask. But God, you work out the details in their lives. And then you give me the opportunity and share them with Jesus. So, no song, no frill, no anything, no prayer even. Would you just come and fill this altar up with people who are on your hearts and minds and pray, God, you do the work before me.
giving me the opportunity to ask. If you're in the overflow room, you just walk down front in the overflow room and kneel and pray over there. Christians, would you join me just now? Let's come. Josh, you sing. God's, you, you got somebody in your heart and mind? Come just now. Don't wait. Just come. Fill up the altar. Fill up the aisles. Let's come pray for God to do something. Are you hurting, bro? in your heart that if you were to die before tomorrow listen my wife could be making funeral plans this time tomorrow your, your husband your wife your kids your parents they, they could be making funeral plans this time tomorrow we have no promise of another day what does that do to your heart That terrifies you and you don't have any promise in your heart of heaven but you'd like to here's what I want to tell you becoming Christians as simple as ABC hey you've got to admit that you can't save yourself you can't work your way to heaven you can't earn your way to heaven can't give your way to heaven can't be good enough to get to heaven none of us can I wouldn't trust the best five minutes of my life to get me to heaven you can't do it nobody ever has you've got to admit that B, you've got to believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day. That's the gospel. And C, you've got to confess him as Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So while our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you'd like to pray and receive Jesus today and know that Christ is in your life and heaven is your home. There's no magic formula to say. There's no secret words. There's no incantation in the Bible you have to repeat. Here's the truth. The intent of your heart and life this morning is to trust Jesus as your Savior and have your sins forgiven. I'm only going to lead you in prayer because I know prayer is sometimes hard if you've never done it before. If you'd like to become a Christian today and God's working in your heart, would you just pray with me out loud or in your heart? Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I cannot save myself, but I know that Christ died on the cross so I could be saved. 
just now invite Jesus into my heart and life. Save me. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a home in heaven. I trust Jesus and Jesus alone. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you prayed that prayer, here's what I want you to do. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.